You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. You stand for the reading of God's Word from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have learned from us how you ought to live and please God, as in fact you are now doing, that you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrong or exploit a brother or a sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives us His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we give You thanks for the opportunity to worship and praise You together. We give You thanks for Your Word. And we pray this morning that Your Word will come not simply audibly, but in power, with full conviction and with Your Holy Spirit. Through Jesus, who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Well, I love a good question. And there is an old comedian, a longtime comedian, who has made his life on questions. You probably know this guy from his You Might Be a Redneck If jokes, Jeff Foxworthy. But he also, when he moved from attacking the South for a while, moved to thinking about stupid people wherever they might be and handing them a sign. Because if we handed them a sign, then we wouldn't get dumb questions from stupid people. So he would talk all of these bits about, you know, maybe someone's late working, they're at the office until very late, and a coworker comes in and sees them there and says, you working late? Yep, here's your sign. Or another time when someone's moving, there's a U-Haul truck backed up, uh, boxes everywhere. Someone comes along and neighbor says, hey, you moving? Here's your sign. Yeah, we just like to box up our house every couple of months just to see if we can do it, see how many boxes it takes, and then put it all back. Or what about the time whenever you're just uh, concerned about falling flat, falling flat on your face, and he always points us to these stupid people holding these signs that would just save us all a lot of grief. Now, I want to ask a question today that's more of a big question. What is God's will for us? Now, that's a big question. And Paul answers it for us in verse 3 of chapter 4. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. Sanctification. Now, that's a real churchy word. 
kind of hard to get past that word. It's almost like it's dressed up in a choir robe, and you just can't get past the liturgical garb of that word. What is sanctification? Well, that's what we're going to spend time looking at today. As we've been exploring together, over the miles, what now? Looking at this ancient letter, and I think it might be good here if we hit the rewind button and just think back of where we've come. I mean, even just last week, we made a point that people are not the enemy. No, it's not about the media. It's not about the governor. It's not about someone with a counter view from us. It's not about the pastor or the elder. People are not the enemy. Right now, the virus is the enemy. And we are all about the other and a helping in make enduring people that are going to last for a long time. Two weeks ago, we looked at how we might walk worthily, how we might walk in alignment with God. And we used looking at mothers as a way of thinking about how we could walk in alignment with God. Three weeks ago, there was a phrase that Paul uses at the front of chapter 2 that I just really liked. Now, our coming to you was not a total failure. I just, I really relate to that. No, it was not a failure. In fact, we've shared our lives with you. We've shared our very breath. And in that time, we took a moment to let ourselves breathe, to be grounded in bigger realities that God reigns. A month ago, we were out in the parking lot leading a rebellion, a rebellion of hope. As we think about how we might bring hope into this world, thinking about practices, thinking about ways that we could conduct ourselves during this time of quarantine for more prayer or more scripture reading or just encouraging other people that are in our lives. We started this series up on the roof on Easter Sunday, getting a bigger view, a wider perspective that Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. And we rang the church bells not to call people into church, but to send all of us out, out into the world in faith and hope and love. But now we've got this question to contend with. I'm not sure this summer what's going to happen with family reunions, if you're going to be getting together with your family or if it's going to be yet one more Zoom call. But family reunions are a place where I tend to get a lot of questions. And I never know where those questions are going to come from. Is it, how's the job going? What's going on with the kids? You know, where's your son going to college? That type thing. Well, one year in particular, one of the older members of Donna's side of the family approached me and said, Brady, I've got a question for you. So, knowing that it's an in-law, I just kind of buckled my seatbelt and I said, well, yeah, ask me your question. I said, Brady, I've, I've really been troubled by this and I want to know your insight on it. Can we be holy? And he just looked at me, and I had to wait a second to know whether or not he's serious or not, but he just kept looking at me. Can we be holy? I'm really wondering about this because God is holy, and I think that since God is holy, we probably can't be holy, and I want to know what you think. Can we be holy? Well, I could tell he was serious, and so I brought up about Leviticus 11 where God calls us to be holy as He is holy. The passage that's quoted again in 1 Peter. And I could understand where He was coming from. Because it's easy for us to think, you know, I'm not perfect. How in the world could I be holy? So His question was legitimate. 
How is it possible for us to be holy when we can't even live life the way we want to live? Well, let's spend some time there looking at what God's will is. That God's will for us is that we be sanctified in verse 3 of chapter 4. And I want to find a way to kind of take the church clothes off of this, that choir robe off, and get down to street clothes, down to something that we can wrestle with. Whenever you hear this, what I want you to catch is that God is very much interested in you. He's interested in your sanctification. Now, I find that really intriguing, that God, the eternal God, is interested in you, in me? That somewhere in God's will, He cares about us and making us into something? I find that amazing that God would pay attention to us. Whenever we've had people pay attention to us, maybe it's a a mentor or someone that we respect at work or a family member or even a star or someone that we thought we would never meet, those are moments that we mark. They're very rare, especially if they stop to encourage us or let us ask them a question and they spend time carefully answering it. I mean, that's, that's a moment we want to take a picture with the person. We want to get their signature or autograph. We want some kind of a selfie or a memento to mark that occasion of getting to spend time with them. I'll never forget the time when Max Lucado came into my office and sat down and visited with me. He would come to speak, but he came and spent time with me. I wanted to know how my ministry was going. I wanted to know what things... I was studying and wrestling with. So for someone so famous, so respected, so well-beloved to make effort to focus on me, now that's a moment that you want to mark. And God cares for you. In His will, He is interested in you being made holy. He loves you not just for a moment, not just for your body, or what you can give God, or some bit of knowledge. God doesn't love us like that. God is interested in our well-being. He's not just like the guy that wants the test answers from us. Both of those people, the one giving the test answers and the one taking them, are using one another at some level. Well, there's also something happening here where God not only has inside of His will an interest and a care for us, But He's given us a will. He's given us the opportunity where He won't control us. If we don't want to pay attention to God, we don't have to pay attention to God. He doesn't demand that we follow Him. He doesn't stop us from doing things that are against His will. We are at liberty to refuse God and disregard Him entirely. God has given each of us a will. And God has given us in his desire, in his will, this plan, this intention to be sanctified. Now, I know the word sanctification is not fresh. It's not popular. You're not going to want to make a marketing campaign that uses, how can we spin this so that people will feel sanctified? That they'll feel more holy? It's just not that kind of word. In fact, the word itself means set apart or designated for some holy purpose. It is about making or being made holy. 
And that still is something that's hard to get our arms around, hard to get a grasp of what that actually looks like in real life. Well, I want you to think for a minute about something special in your life, something that you own that you really, really treasure and value. Well, for me, at least one of those things would be books. I really like to take care of books. Make sure the pages don't get wrinkled, don't damage the spine. Put maybe a dust cover on it. And occasionally I'll underline books, but I'm very careful with them. What's a special thing in your life? Is it an expensive purchase, like a bike or a car that you don't want to get scratched or broken? Something that you treasure. And I want you to think about what you do with that. Those things that we love, we value, we want to put in a glass case. We want to protect. We want to put an extra coat of wax on. Put it behind a firewall. Make sure that it's locked up and protected. You know, another way that we could think about this is just what we're celebrating this weekend as a country. This is Memorial Day. One of the many occasions where we honor those who have served our country. Specifically on Memorial Day, we think about those who have lost their lives in service. Now, while we are Christians first, and we don't want to confuse that somehow America is more important than being a Christian, it's important to recognize those veterans. One of the symbols, one of the places where that is significant is the flag. (coughs) Over the last several months, over the spring, people noticed that our flag was looking pretty dilapidated, pretty faded, pretty tattered. And two couples and a Girl Scout troop had their hearts set on doing something significant. One of those couples was a couple that came to first in the fall and really wanted us to do their wedding, for me to perform their wedding, to do their premarital counseling. They were connected into us because they saw how we acted. Both of them had military connections. Well, we took this gift of a flag from them as our backup because someone had beat them to the punch. That's Jane Duran. Jane Duran had already arranged to give us this special flag. A flag that was from her father, a World War II veteran, who, over his casket, this flag was draped. This particular flag presented to the family at his burial a very special flag, set apart for an important purpose. Now, I want to be really clear here, right? We're not trying to blend Christianity and religion. This is not about patriotism. We don't want to confuse the two. Patriotism and Christianity are completely different things. The part that I'm wanting to highlight is how Jane didn't want this flag to be kept in a glass case, left on a shelf. Her father was a very practical man. She wanted it put to use, and she knew that he would as well. And so that's exactly what happened. That's the kind of set apart that we're looking for where God has chosen us, not just to be a once-and-done process of sanctification, but an ongoing process. Not where we're put behind glass and we just try to keep it squeaky clean, where everyone can see how perfect and pure we are. No, no, no. We're all in a process of being developed over our life as learners and growers. Well, Paul does an interesting thing here where he ties this (coughs) to sexuality. 
where in his same breath here, talking about sanctification in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you learn how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one wrong or exploit a brother or sister. Now, why is it that he would connect sexuality and sanctification? That seems so strange to me. Especially in this time when their sexual mores were a lot like our own. Greek men had no thought of sexual intercourse with whomever. As long as it was uh, a prostitute or a slave or a concubine, even other men, it didn't matter before their married age, they could sleep with whomever they wanted. Now, Jews were a little bit more restrictive. They only uh, practiced sexual intercourse with those that were to be their spouse, with the one to be their spouse. And they would look at all Gentiles and they would just see them as corrupt and morally bankrupt. Well, Christians tend to lead more toward that more restrictive view where they view intimacy in this way as an encounter between two married individuals. So why, if Paul's talking about this church word of sanctification, would he tie it to sexuality? I don't think Paul is establishing a bunch of moral rules that you can check off and say, yeah, I broke that. Oh, I don't agree with that one. I disagree there. Paul is talking about building a particular life. In verse 1, they are invited to They were asked and urged in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you've learned how you ought to live, how you ought to walk, to do so more and more so that you may please God. This is about our bodies, not just a thought system, not just a doctrinal statement that we sign, not just a belief system, but it involves our whole being. It's a process of being made holy. And the word shows up in verse 3, in verse 4, and verse 7. That God's will for us is that we learn to be sanctified, be made holy. That we learn how to control our bodies in holiness. And also, that we are living into this calling of being holy. God doesn't leave us alone. Verse 8, He gives us of His Holy Spirit to live inside of us and live with us. Where is best to spend our time is that I don't think he's just focused on sex. I think he's using sex to talk about all desires. Desires are something that all of us humans experience. And to be trained in holiness is to learn to do something with those desires. Our feelings and our desires we sometimes think of as uncontrollable. And to an extent, they come at us in ways that we can't control. A desire for food a desire for drink, or intercourse, or just to get a haircut, a desire to buy a tool, or buy some clothes, or be able to spend time with friends. Being a human is to have desires. And sometimes we just associate those desires with, well, that's just who I am. You know, a girl wants what a girl wants. And we make our desires our full identity. Well, He kind of calls out these Gentiles, these non-Jews, as an example of those who don't know how to control their bodies and don't know God. So what is a desire? A desire is simply to want something. 
to want someone and to have this object in mind that you might have to have. Even a child, as soon as they can grunt, can say what they want to eat or which person they want to be held by or what they don't want to be involved in. At a very early age, we know what someone's desires are. And so at a fundamental level, it's just wanting something. Well, another thing about desires is that adults and children don't always want things that are good. Not every desire is a good thing. Sometimes those desires are not good for us, and they're not what's best in a given situation. Our desires can be very bad and very destructive. Another interesting thing about desires is that they're inherently conflictual. They're in conflict with one another. Think about my own desires. I want a piece of chocolate cake, but I don't want to overeat. I want to go and watch the movie, but I'd also like to go on a hike. Desires inside of me, internal to me, will often be at conflict. We can't do all that we want to do. We can't fix all that we want to fix. Externally, desires are also in conflict because my desires may conflict with your desires. Where I want to use the car, but some other member of my family wants to use the car. Or they want the last cookie, but so do I. Desires are inherently conflictual. Well, another thing about desires is that they are not your identity. They are not who you are. Your feelings and your desires are there, but they can't run the show. They're not the same thing as your will. They're not the same thing as your heart. They can take you down a path that will destroy you. And desire, when desire is a master, it is a terrible master. An unrestrained desire will make a wreck of our relationships and our families and even our work. So, sum it up so far. God wants to make us holy. And He does so by helping us learn to control our desires. And God does so because He cares deeply for us. More deeply than any desire could care for us. God looks out for us. And in a world that hears conflicting messages about sex, sex is a great example of desire, but we get these messages that come at us that, oh, it's no big deal at all. It's natural. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone or as long as they have consent with you. To the other extreme of it's no big deal, but man, it's a great way to sell things. It's a great marketing tool. It's much better to sell something about sex than it is to try to use sanctification to sell someone. But sex is this great example because it gets us to look deeper at what's going on inside of us. Our desires for food, our desires for power, or even for praise help us to begin to train for holiness, to check those desires, to acknowledge that they're there, and to use our minds and our wills to redirect those desires. Maybe we delay. Maybe we, as we teach our kids, provide some self-delayed gratification where it's not always an instant yes. God has set us apart. He's made us holy. He wants to make us like Him. 
And in order to do that, we must pay attention to our desires. As we learn to control our bodies by becoming more and more holy. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you have looked favorably on us. That you want to be in relationship with us. And so we pray that you will help us in this desire to be holy. That you will make us holy as you are holy. And we pray this through Jesus' name. Amen.